downloaded Audacity on my new computer <laughs> for no reason. I know. Now we've now we're doing everything over over the internet and I've <gasps> got a soundboard. It's going to be dangerous. It's so dangerous. I'm going to write them and make them take the buttons away from you. <laughs> or at least power. give soundboard control to guests. Exactly. This is power that you should not wield, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I have before because, you know, editing. <laughs> yeah, but I know you don't have time to, to, you know, put that much effort into it. <laughs> I do enjoy the one episode where you were talking about uh, you didn't have the right clothing, and I did like the dream harp and you <laughs> echoing was... from you know a month or so earlier about having the right clothing in the field. <laughs> that was impressive, I'll say. <laughs> the dream harp. I know exactly which sound effect. Like I just played it in my head. <laughs> the flashback yep, sound exactly. effect. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, all right. <laughs> I don't know what to do without like clapping or counting down or. Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing great. How about yourself? Not too bad. Mm-hmm. The weather's been really boring. Like, I don't even know what to talk about, right? We had a little thunderstorm roll through, but... Yeah, you know, minor thunderstorms, temperatures are dipping down. We kind of had a false spring. Yeah, as always, I'm not not concerned right. about that. I do know that Gary McManus is very upset because he does enjoy very hot temperatures. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's April and... In college, which is the worst time of year. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. April showers bring May finals. So, <laughs> Oh, so true. But on the good news note, we did get approved to go to field camp for part of the summer. So, Oh, we'll good. So you're going to be doing a, a mix of virtual and not? I'm going to be doing all virtual plus a mix of virtual and not. So... Yes. Oh, good. It's uh -huh. only 150% the work. <laughs> that is exactly right. <laughs> but I'm super excited to get back out to camp. So that's really good. And I know this cohort of students haven't had many field trips in their undergrad careers. So they need this. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So more, more to come on that. And you know, I don't know. June's going to be real bad for me, but that's okay. It usually is. So <laughs> We've podcasted from the back of Suburbans before. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's really quiet. That's probably the best audio quality I've ever had was podcasting from that Suburban with my Wi-Fi hotspot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was pretty good. <laughs> anyway, how's it going? Well, so... <laughs> It's good. I thought uh, this week it might be fun because we were mentioned on uh, Twitter uh, by at MLE underscore online of, hey, I found these dense black nodules. What are they? 
Mm-hmm. And Twitter consensus so far has been some sort of concretion or hematite. I know you've got some thoughts that you're ready to, to add to the Twitter conversation. Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna I've I'm been doing my research on these um specific ones, but yeah, I will also concur that they're probably hematite nodules. But this is really I mean, I do love from Emily that she <laughs> has in the background the picture she took is like a quilting square. <laughs> and that makes me really happy because you can see the dimensions. Um, right from that, <laughs> but I will say that we get a lot of these at the university, and by these I mean people sending in pictures of things and saying, "Hey, what is this?" Um, and we <laughs> contribute to that because, believe it or not, even as a geophysical consulting company, we get calls from random people. I, yes, that yes. hey, I found this thing. Can you tell me what it is? And I always say, you should take it to your local university's geology department. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> so we actually have someone in uh, the Oklahoma Geological Survey that we pay her specifically to answer these questions. We get so many. So like there's no way that any one faculty member can can take all of those um, because there are that many people bring them up there and you know, we get all kinds of suggestions as to what they are, which are generally wrong, but that's okay. And right. basically, <laughs> I tell everyone it's chert, no matter what it looks like. That's always the answer. <laughs> chert is the answer. Um, and people get really heated about this, too. And so those are always some very interesting ones. When they think that they have something that's valuable and you tell them otherwise, they generally don't believe you. <laughs> So, right. Um, but, but this is a thing that lots of geologists get a lot. And so I think maybe this gave you the idea that we could give some people some tips on how they can make a first pass at trying to identify some rock that they may have that they don't know what it is. And more specifically this week, I thought we'll talk about identifying minerals because rocks are, you know, complex combinations of minerals. So let's start simple. <laughs> okay. Good. And work our way up to rocks. <laughs> and I mean, you know, minerals are the constituents of rocks. And so sometimes if you can identify a few minerals within a rock, you can generally identify the rock too. So you're absolutely right. Mineral identification is the way to go. And I will say this was one of my least favorite things to do getting my geology degree. Me too. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we had a 50 mineral, black mineral quiz, a 50 mineral, clear mineral quiz and a 50 mineral white mineral quiz. And the lore surrounding those three weeks of lab was intense and terrifying. And the actual doing of the quiz was also intense and terrifying. <laughs> so thanks. Eric Fritz, if you're out there listening to this, <laughs> uh, that was my TA and it was super scary. <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's one of those things that everybody says, well, what color is it? And as we'll talk about, that's probably one of the worst things you could ask for a mineral. A hundred percent. So you, you have a list of stuff, but I made a list before we talked, you floated this idea and I just wanted my instinctual thing of like what I would tell people, like the, if you're going to learn a couple of things, like you generally pick up rocks, you want to learn a couple of things. I have a list of what I think is like the most useful 
things to do. This is really funny because my friend just sent in uh, one of my best friends, her sister's daughter is really into science and they are not science people. And they made fun of me growing up my whole life. (laughs) And then they got cursed. And I say blessed, obviously, with this daughter who's super into science stuff and she loves rocks. And so she's been texting me pictures of all of little Reagan's favorite rocks. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm going to send her this podcast episode when we're done. (laughs) All right. So there's thousands and thousands of distinct minerals out there, but I would say you can get by with what? A hundred common ones. I mean, if you're a sedimentologist, if all you ever look at are sedimentary rocks, you can get by with five. Like, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. If you want to branch into dabbling in igneous rocks or metamorphic rocks, like you like to look at a good countertop and sound fancy, I'd say maybe even like 20 or 30 is all. Okay, so maybe 100 is geologist level. Uh, Yes, 100 is no one wants you near their countertops level. (laughs) Fair. All right. So... What would you look at first to identify a mineral? Like you just said, John, color is bad, which is funny because it's really the first thing that you always see. And so if you didn't have this geology professor, you should have, because they're the ones that will beat you whenever you list color first. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Just annihilate you. Um, And there's good reason for this. Um, One reason is that a lot of people are colorblind. And so I had a structural geology professor who was colorblind, and he would go crazy if we said, hey, what's that red rock over there? Just go crazy, Um, which is fine. That's correct. But the other thing is that lots of minerals can present in different colors. So color is not a good indicator of a mineral. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. um, The... (laughs) I played this game. I I went and spoke to my son's class in fourth grade because they were doing a geology unit. And what I did was I got a bunch of those cool polished rocks and just a bunch of rocks that I have um, in general. And I made two buckets. One said quartz and one said not quartz. And I passed out a rock to everybody. And I said, go put it in which bucket you think. You know, we talked a little bit about quartz. Not much. I said, go put it in the bucket. And so all the white rocks wound up in the quartz bucket and everything else wound up in the other bucket. And joke was on them. They were all types of quartz. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was really great. I don't think his teacher appreciated that at all. (laughs) But Welcome to science. Exactly. So a lot of people might not know that amethyst is just purple quartz. Right, which really to any mineralogist is just quartz Correct. with some some minor exactly uh, purple minor trace it. components. <laughs> I mean, smoky quartz we all know is quartz because it's in the name, but citrine just yellow quartz. <laughs> so, so a lot of these which things coincidentally is also known as quartz and has the same chemical <laughs> formula as quartz. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is why, like, geologists who are not mineralogists hate gemology because gemstones get all these weird different names. Um, and it's all just quartz. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or it's, you know, the, the watermelon variety of this or something. Right. Or it's, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, color 
not the best. Um, I think if you're going to learn one, and this is funny to me because this isn't something I use a lot, but just because I already like know how to ID minerals. But if you don't know a bunch and you just want to start, I actually think looking at Moe's scale of hardness is your best way to go. Ooh, I am. So I figured it was going to be that one or the one that I was going to pick. Oh, so okay. those were that was that was in my top two, but I barely bumped that one to second. But yes, <gasps> let's talk about Mo scale. Okay, so the cool thing about Mo scale, um, and well, I'll get into why I pick it. So it's just increasing hardness with the softest thing being talc, the hardest thing being diamond, and it's just one to ten, and it gives you examples of different minerals that fall into each of those categories. But how you tell what mineral it is and like what the hardness is, is neat because it's generally corresponds to things that you have lying around the house that you can scratch on a rock. So generally, yeah, generally. Um, And it also contains the minerals that are on here, which I mean, every mineral has a hardness, but when you just look up Mohs hardness scale, you know, talc, gypsum, calcite, which is super common, fluorite, sort of common, apatite, orthoclase, that's a feldspar, really common, quartz, really common, topaz, less common, but looks a lot like quartz, so this one's hard, corundum, really hard, diamond. And then things that you would, common objects that fall in between those numbers can be used to either scratch the mineral or be scratched by the mineral. And so if there's a few of them you just memorize, I think those are the best things to have. Yeah. So like, you know, your pocket knife blade or a glass plate, things like that. Right. Exactly. Um, so calcite and quartz are going to be ones. I mean, quartz is really... I was not joking when I said chert is the answer because chert is just quartz. It's very tiny crystallized quartz. Um, Usually you don't find things in like their perfect crystal form. Usually the piece of rock you're trying to identify is the size of, I don't know, a sesame seed and someone brings it to you and says, hey, what's this? What's this mineral? Um, but you know, the small pieces, it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. Sometimes it's really hard to tell calcite from quartz, but what's easy is, you know, your fingernail has a hardness of 2.5. Calcite has a hardness of three. So my fingernail is softer than calcite. Okay. I can't rub my fingernail on calcite and make it scratch. Now you might make a mark on it. So you have to make sure you rub that off and just make sure you're not, you know, you're actually scratching it or not. And then a copper penny has a hardness of 3.5. So if I take that penny and scratch it on the calcite, it actually scratches the calcite because it's harder than a three. And so those are things I have with me generally. And I could say, oh, this is calcite. Now quartz is a seven. Okay. And if you have a steel nail or if you're doing some rock hounding, you've got, um, you've got a hammer. Now steel nail is 6.5. Quartz is seven. So... Quartz can't be scratched by a steel nail, but it will scratch the nail. So you can take a piece of quartz and rub it on your hammer, and if it scratches your hammer, it's quartz. It's not calcite. Pretty handy. Right. And you can even go as far 
is buying a little set of picks or files <laughs> off Amazon. Yes. That's that have a pick or a file for each hardness. Um, <laughs> we were actually talking about using that um, the other day in class. So that's actually really cool. That's a really neat thing. It's cheap and it's really fun because you find a lot of stuff. These these minerals make up the constituents of lots of rocks that you would find around and you just go around scratching stuff. It's kind of neat. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can even buy files for things like Rockwell Hardness and other things too. Uh, it's just, uh, it's it's a cool way to to test, you know, does does the pick or the file skate off the material or bite into it? Right, right. And the nice thing is the common minerals are far enough apart on there that it's easy to tell them apart on the hardness scale, I think. Like, that's one of the things that I think, this is what made it number one for me, is that you can tell the difference between quartz and calcite, which are the two most common minerals you're likely to find fairly easily. Now, quartz and feldspars are pretty close, but you could still find if you had those picks. Um, And the steel nail is harder than feldspar, but not as hard as quartz. So that's an easy thing to have with you that you can test on a feldspar versus quartz. And those are really common minerals. And so now all you need to carry around is a steel nail and your fingernail and a copper penny. And you can identify a very large, maybe even 80% of the minerals you're going to encounter in any, hey, what's this rock scenario. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your number one? Well, I think these are technically two different things, but I'm going to okay. lump them. Okay. I'm going to say crystallographic properties. Oh, no. Nah. <laughs> so what's the symmetry of it? If you hit it, does it break on these nice clean cleavage planes or does it fracture conchoidally like glass would? Uh, and there's lots of fancy science words for all of these things. Uh, so we'll throw those out. So you've got your, your Google foo ready. <laughs> uh, but the the geometric form or the the symmetries would be isometric, tetragonal, hexagonal, orthorhombic, monoclinic, and triclinic. I don't know those off the top of my head for sure. <laughs> I, I can't think, okay, I'm going to look at a monoclinic. Okay, if I think long enough, okay, I can get what a monoclinic probably looks like. Um, but what's probably more intuitive are the the cleavage planes. So right. if it does cleave, does it have one, two, three, four, or six directions of cleavage? Or no cleavage. Or no cleavage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then that gets you into, is it cubic, octahedral, dodecahedral, rhombohedral, prismatic, or pinacoidal? So those are two different things. But my problem with crystals is... In nature, being a amateur geologist, like very amateur, you're rarely going to encounter a mineral in its true crystal form. Like in the... That's fair. Yeah, like in the expression of its crystal form. Like if you're hunting topaz, that's good to know because the crystal 
crystallographic form of topaz is different than quartz. They're right next to each other on most hardness. So it's kind of hard and they look a lot alike. Um, but the crystal habit is different between those two. And so that's how you would tell them apart if you have a perfect crystal. But rarely, even in even in coarse crystalline granites or something like that, where you're likely to be able to identify the constituents, if it's not like a barrel or any kind of tourmaline or something like that that's coming in later, it's really hard to see crystals in their native form. So I think as you graduate from very, very amateur to amateur, crystallography is great. But you're absolutely right. Cleavage is fracture and cleavage are my next that's my next one too. Next thing you want to do is hit it. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, I'm more speaking in terms of mineral ID, not general rock ID. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that does make, that does make it a little less useful. Cause yeah, you don't go out and find, there are places you can go find these yes. huge, perfect quartz crystals. Uh, Southern mm-hmm. Arkansas is great for it. I've done it. It's a blast. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And you, know, you can go dig gypsum out in Western Oklahoma. Yeah, exactly. And you can find topaz all over the place in Colorado and tourmaline and all kinds of other great things. Yeah, exactly. But when you've made it that far, you probably know, you know, what you're looking for. But cleavage is a pretty easy one. And you don't even actually have to hit them generally. Usually if you found a piece of rock, there's a part of it that's probably been broken off. And that's all you need to figure out what a cleavage plane is. And this, just like you said, like this is really great because this also quickly and easily delineates lots of very common minerals that you would encounter. Right. You see a ROMB. Well, what's that? Probably. Probably calcite. <laughs> there aren't many things. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Calcite or dolomite. And I mean, that's how we identify dolomite in thin section you know you got this little rhombohedral crystal yeah that's a dolomite for sure mm-hmm. and then exactly. quartz doesn't have cleavage it has conchoidal fracture so much like glass it breaks in this if you're i'm trying to think if if you've seen lots of obsidian it has that very distinct way that it breaks that's also conchoidal fracture And so the big deal with quartz is it doesn't have cleavage. Like if you break it up, it just fractures conchoidally. There's no well-developed faces it would break along. Whereas if you had halite, like you've got this other clear mineral, you don't want to stick it in your mouth. If you stuck it in your mouth, you'd know it was halite. But if you have halite and calcite next to each other, so calcite is rhombic, halite is cubic. And so if you break the halite, it's little cubes. It's not rhombohedral, and so you can easily tell those two apart. Right, and like pyrite's cubic. I've got some cubes mm-hmm. of pyrite here that are amazing. <laughs> yes, uh, uh-huh. Like, I exactly. really like looking at them because it's so cool that they just come out of the ground as cubes. As cubes, and so gold doesn't do that, which is a way that you can tell when you have pyrite. So... I think it's pretty cool. You can also run onto things that would be called amorphous, which means they're not in their crystalline form. They're in what we would refer to as the massive form. <laughs> Blobs. <laughs> yeah. Big blob of quartz. It doesn't really have any 
pretty crystal shape. It's just a blob. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and you get this with hematite a lot too, which if you look at our Twitter, you know, you get really blobby hematite a lot as well. Right. Uh, an- another test that would be really good, uh, and we talked about this a couple episodes ago in our geology field kit, uh, for a lot of things, including hematite, would be what streak does it leave? Right. And so really hematite's the only one that I always think streak is interesting for, but that's not true. That's just my own bias because I work with hematite. Um, Sphalerite. Yeah, uh. <laughs> I know. Fluorite's got a specific streak to you, right? Um, but you can get, so you can just use a ceramic tile for this, you know, and not the shiny part of a tile, but like the back of the tile. <laughs> like that's all a streak. Yeah, the, the unglazed part. <laughs> Correct. Yes. <laughs> and so like you can find those pretty easily and just carry these around with you. And I had a student give me a specimen and with it, he included this tiny little streak plate. It's like a Scrabble tile streak plate and I've never I've never seen or had like a travel version of a streak plate I'm so excited like I immediately put it in my field kit and I can't wait to like get out in the wild and actually like use it right (laughs) (laughs) yeah I love it um and the deal with like hematite is sometimes it looks its luster is metallic right so it looks very shiny but then you rub that shiny gray thing on a streak plate and hematite has a red streak like no matter what it looks like even when it looks red it's got a red streak so that's one of the things that we use to identify mineral with yeah and there's lots of lusters uh you know metallic and non-metallic but non-metallic there's a bunch some that you see pretty often some that you don't um but the one that is probably the most fun is adamantine. <laughs> you rarely uh, get to use this luster because you don't have a bunch of, you know, diamonds hanging diamonds. out in the lab. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always hated luster. This one was the hardest one for me. It's less. Okay. It's not as hard now knowing what I know. <laughs> but in right. the intro, I remember that I had a hard time understanding what this meant. And I think you only understand luster when you look at a large, large number of minerals. But like some of these things, like silky and greasy, that's hard for me to, you know, greasy would be something like um, graphite. But to me, that kind of looks silky too. So I don't know. Well, our greasy and resinous got me oily appearance versus waxy appearance. (sighs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that that's this is where I would start getting very frustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. But the other one that you'll hear a lot is vitreous. So that would be that conchoidal fracture. Right. Glassy looking, looking. pattern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nacreous is a really easy one too. And that's just pearly. So um, some of your fossils will look pearly. Like a, if you think about an oyster shell, the inside of that, that's nacreous. Right. So, yeah, luster is the most frustrating and not necessarily the most useful because sometimes things can have more than one type of luster. So I can't think of a time where I've misidentified a mineral like, ah, if I had only remembered that it was earthy luster. (laughs) 
<laughs> Earthy luster doesn't even, it sounds like an oxymoron. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's boring and dull. Okay, that's not even a luster, right? <laughs> um, right. Yeah, and, and luster technically is the brightness of light reflected from the mineral surface. I despise luster. <laughs> I really do. I really think that hardness and fracture are the way to go. If you want to get more into it, I think the crystallographic form and even the color, because there are like general colors things are. So, you know. Well, and, you know, Emily hinted at this in her tweet when she said it's heavier than other things around uh -huh. it. Specific yeah. gravity, which is, I mean, yes. okay. I hate specific <laughs> gravity. Just tell me the density. Don't normalize it. Just tell me the density. So specific gravity is just relative density, but I love it. Okay. Get off that soapbox. Um, like who cares what it wears, what it weighs compared to the same volume of water. See, I think specific gravity is easier to understand. Oh, well, I mean, maybe it's a geophysicist thing, but I'm perfectly comfortable thinking in density. <laughs> I mean, I am too now, but if you're trying to like explain this or use this as a, say, sixth grader, which is the age now that the earth science science standards are taught, isn't it easy to be like, how much does this, you know, thimble full of water weigh? All right. How much does this weigh relative to that thimble full of water? Is it more or less? And I think if you okay. think about water enough, you know, kids play flip cup, all this other stuff, you know, I think that that's an easier one in your head to think about, actually. I know you okay, need I mean, numbers. <laughs> we use specific gravity in brewing, too, and it frustrates me there, too. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. See, there you go. God, that's really funny that everybody has one they hate, right? Luster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't like it either, but... This is just a minor annoyance, but it's one that gets to me. <laughs> oh, so, it's so funny. But it is true. I mean, there are some minerals that you pick up and you're like, oh, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know exactly what this is. Yep. That is exactly right. Like, oh, man. Yeah. Any Galena hematite. Oh, yeah. yeah. For sure. Galena. I, I have a couple of Galena hand samples, uh, which is lead. And mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> holy cow, they are heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even little pieces of it. Like, yeah, we should ask him. Who's that guy that we had on that did all the the touch research? That'd be interesting. Oh, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, or, you know, you pick up a piece of pumice and you're like, well, this is obvious. Yes, correct. Because <laughs> it has such a low specific gravity. <laughs> also known as a low density. <laughs> <laughs> also known as there it actually matters going. because you know oh, if it's well, yeah. a lower if it's less than one it floats on water but yeah. how many rocks float on water that is true it's true just ice because <laughs> it's a mineral ice is a mineral ice is a mineral <laughs> um okay so magnetism obviously is one because lots of people have magnets but it it really only helps if you have like large amounts of magnetite or maybe pyrotite. And even though hematite is also an iron oxide, it's not necessarily always highly magnetic. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, so the other thing is everything's a little magnetic. 
Correct. Uh huh. Yes. If you have a strong enough magnet, you're going to go, oh, it's magnetic. A hundred percent. That is hundred percent true. Um, I always like, so, um, now if you have a specialized backpack that holds a water bladder, you know, usually those water bladders have a little magnet clasp that'll clasp onto like the little clippy tag that goes across your chest. And I always love it when you take that off and you're having your lunch and you go to pick it up. And then that little magnet from the water bladder tube is just covered in little black stuff because it's been sitting down in the dirt. Yeah, that's all your magnetite and pyrotite. It's always fun for Uh, me. Smarter Every Day had a pretty interesting video the other day of uh, they've been outside welding and grinding. And earthworms were active in that. I mean, we have a ton of earthworms right now here. And uh, they could actually pick the earthworms up with magnets because of all the metal <gasps> that was that in the dirt they that they've been ingesting. Ingesting? Oh my gosh! Wow, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. So I mean, hey. I don't know. Well, as and, much as I mean, if you don't believe me that everything's magnetic with strong magnets, like I challenge oh. you, next time you pour your Wheaties in the morning, <laughs> uh, get a rare earth magnet. You can drag Wheaties around the bowl because of all the iron in them. Yep, sure can. We have a couple of rare earth magnets and we just leave them attached to the desks in the labs. And it's like really fun to be like, hey, hand me that magnet and then watch people struggle to try and get them <laughs> off. <laughs> and they'll be like, here, do you need this? No, I didn't need it. I just wanted to see you do that. <laughs> and, you know, if you want to go down a, uh, a good Google rabbit hole too, uh, you can search how that you can make switched magnets. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in machining, we use magnetic chucks sometimes to hold parts down. And right. there's a lever on the side. It's not electrical at all. So don't think I'm talking about electromagnets. Uh, there's a lever on the side and you flip it one way and it's not magnetic. You flip it the other way. It's magnetic. It's paleo magic. Yeah. It's pretty cool stuff. <laughs> um, but it's like magnetism is useful for so few minerals. <laughs> it, yeah. <it's, laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody carrying a magnet in the field for no. that purpose. No, exactly. Basically just big chunks of magnetite or pure type. Um, and then acid is the best one, but also like, we're not going to tell you how to do this with things you can buy over yes, the counter. Because <laughs> somehow we would be liable. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, um, we use acid very frequently, especially when you're trying to look at if something has calcite in it, because calcite is very effervescent. Um, and so calcite in rocks will go crazy if you put acid on it. But also this is something to keep in mind that I think we forget a lot too. The temperature at which the acid is will determine how stuff reacts. And so very frequently, and we do this in intro labs all the time, is that we've got calcite and we've got dolomite, both super common. Dolomite has a lot of magnesium in it. Okay. Calcite, CaCO3, dolomite, CaMgCO3. And dolomite, we always say dolomite doesn't fizz and calcite does. But that's not true. (laughs) Like, calcite can get really fizzy. And dolomite doesn't fizz really on the surface. But if you actually got a microscope down there or even a hand lens, you'd see some bubbles. And if you powder dolomite, you've increased the surface area of the dolomite and it'll fizz a whole bunch if you do that. But also if your acid's hot, 
it will still fizz because hot acid reacts with dolomite better than cold acid does. So and your acid's often hot when you're hiking exactly, around outside all day. That is exactly right. You don't think about it. You just pull it out of your, you know, backpack and that pocket has been sitting there absorbing sunlight all day and your acid is burning hot. <laughs> it's going to make that dolomite fizz. So there's still some caveats to acid. It's not a dead ringer. You got to be careful with it. Right. And one of the last ones that I would say I've done in the field anyway, mm-hmm. is, uh, and you talked about this using UV light because you get lots of cool fluorescence from certain minerals. Right. Um, again, calcite. But don't look at it. Yes, <laughs> correct. Don't, don't stick it in your eyeball. Um, calcite fluoresces, fluorite fluoresces, no big surprise there. <laughs> uh, gypsum and halite fluoresce and things will fluoresce with certain colors. And so you need a chart or you need to memorize it before you go. But what's cool now is these hand lenses that have LED lights and UV lights on them are getting cheaper and cheaper, and so you can use those. The problem is calcite, gypsum, and halite look a lot alike anyway, (laughs) and they're going to fluoresce, and, (laughs) you know, so I don't know what good it's doing you. You might need one of these other things, too. (laughs) And if you're out prospecting for uranium, say out in Colorado or something, Mm -hmm. uh, uranium Mm -hmm. minerals also fluoresce. Yeah, you could see a lot of those, actually. I like to look for Stanlia, which is the yellow flower that likes to take up uranium, and you usually see them associated with deposits. So don't forget that um, flowers and foliage can help you identify things too. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it's a great way to trace faults in the field. Oh, so where's uh-huh. the growth? Because that's water conduit. Yep, that's exactly right. That doesn't mean that every tree lives on a fault, but it means that sometimes the presence of trees can indicate faults. Students, except when it doesn't. Except when it doesn't. <laughs> As all of the students throw their phones. <laughs> oh, I think my my um, cross section of grading makes it abundantly clear that students don't listen to this. So. and i mean that's one of the things that would frustrate me when when i was doing especially field mapping oh man you know how do you well it is in this case but it's not over here "Ah." but it's it's that's how it is it is the real world's messy and it's so hard to get people okay with those yeah okay with those uncertainties (laughs) Well, and you're making an educated guess, and you have to remember as a student or as an amateur geologist, you're making an educated guess with a lot less information than somebody that's been doing it for 20 years. Yes. So yep. it doesn't make your guess wrong. It means you're learning. Yes. I know. I My friends and I talk about this all the time. You know, you can't fake 25 years of experience. You just have to get it. <laughs> and so <laughs> as much as you... I know, and I want it now. <laughs> you just have to live it, you know. So, well, it it's comes... one thing we're struggling with it uh, at work too right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in the geological context, but in the context of, you know, somebody will say like, "Hey, thing is doing X," and I say, "Oh yeah, do this." Well, it's because it did that to me two years ago, and I right. spent a day figuring out <laughs> what was going on. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, how do we, how do we document that? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you think about it, figuring out when something funny happens, figuring out what caused it and documenting what it was and the solution at the end of the day, you're describing the scientific method. Yes. Whether you're using it in business or in writing a paper or in identifying a mineral. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent you are. Yep. Exactly. And I love so, it when people realize that they're like, oh, oh, yes, I am a scientist. See? So everyone's a scientist, whether you mean to be or not, because you use that kind of thinking to solve problems. Exactly. hmm Great. <laughs> All right. Well, so now, uh, we're sorry that we hijacked your, your tweet, Emily. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> an entire podcast episode. Oh, and she's but I thought like, this would oh, be fun goodness. to talk about. Yeah. yeah. No, it's super great because this is a really common thing. As soon as you say you're a geologist, somebody says, I have this weird rock. It looks like this. Or I'm going to send you this picture of this weird rock. And, and I think really the show hard. title has to be, I hate luster. <laughs> <laughs> um, it should also be, and every show title from here on, 95% chance of chert. <laughs> right. Um, my daughter actually the other day said, is everything shirt? <laughs> and I, said, I like it. Everything in that sandbox is. <laughs> awesome. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I think it's time to move on to identifying something totally different in this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Okay. Ice is a mineral, but. Water isn't, so you're right. <laughs> right. So water's not a mineral. Mm-hmm. But if you freeze it, it is, which is, you know, weird, but lava's not a mineral either. So correct. <laughs> um this is from none other than our regular fun paper contributor, <laughs> listener Daryl. Daryl, you find some really awesome papers. I know. This guy reads more scientific literature than I do, and I'm a scientist. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> and it is Sweet Taste of Heavy Water by Abu et al. And it's et al. in capital. There's a, a lot of authors lot here. A lot of et al's. Um, there's some, okay, we can go through the overview of this, but I definitely want to point out some interesting things in this paper. <laughs> So deuterium, which is one of my favorite things to say. <laughs> like so I will call it D2O just so I don't deprive <laughs> you of any deuteriums. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> um, we all know I hate chemistry, right? But deuterium, I love. So hydrogen, <laughs> right, is what's hydrogen made up of? The proton. Uh-huh. And then you get this cool thing called deuterium, which is? Proton and a neutron. What? Duo, right? Deuterium. Um, I think you also can call the normal form of hydrogen protium. Isn't that the right name? Yes. Yeah. And there's tritium too. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So in this one, we're only looking at deuterium, and it's much more fun to say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, now... You're going to really love this word because I I have done a little bit of work with D2O. Um, and when you are applying it to a sample so you can analyze ah, it, yes. the process is called deuteration. <laughs> this is 
what I wanted to bring up because I'm <laughs> never like, I've never done that. And this is in like the second sentence. It says deuteration. <laughs> like this is the best thing I've ever read. <laughs> no, we, we did um, gas hydrates, but mm-hmm. we were doing NMR okay. on them. And mm-hmm. uh, NMR reacts really strongly to hydrogen, but not so much to deuterium. Oh, so okay. if you want to study the things that are in the sample other than water, you need to replace normal water with D2O. Uh, so we would make deuterated hydrates. <laughs> how, do, how do you deuterate water? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So how do you make these? How do you make deuterium? Uh, easiest way is electrolysis. Okay. Yep. That makes yeah, sense. So uh, the electrolysis will preferentially break apart normal water before it breaks apart heavy water or mm-hmm. deuterium. Uh, so you electrolyze a bunch of water and then you electrolyze that and you electrolyze that and you electrolyze that and eventually end up with very pure deuterium. Okay. Um, so deuterium can kill you, which is interesting. If you drink like 50% of your water. 50% it, yeah. of your body weight in deuterium would kill you. That's actually way lower than I thought. Um, the other interesting thing is when you deuterize. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Um, water. That this was shocking to me by this amount. So it increases the freezing and boiling points by 3.8 and 1.4 C respectively, that's way higher than I would thought. think. Yeah, I mean, it's you're changing the nuclear structure of yeah. something. Uh-huh. Uh, and the main use of deuterium for a long time has been in uh, nuclear reactors. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, as a moderator. Right, uh, makes sense. And now we use it for NMR a lot. Uh-huh. And I think there are some medical procedures where you're using it too. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and then, of course, like it, it would increase the pH, but then they call it PD, which blew my mind too. <laughs> right, because what is pH? Yeah. It's a measure of uh, hydroxyls. Yeah. And now you've got deuteroxyls. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, this is my favorite chemistry. um yeah and i mean we could well we could talk about this all day long but this paper is about the fact that so deuterium's not going to kill you if you just have a little bit of it humans can distinguish fairly pure d2o from regular h2o and that distinguishing point when they drink it is that the D2O is described as sweet. Slightly sweet. 3.3, as a matter of fact, on a scale of 1 to 10. Slightly Uh. sweeter. (laughs) Yeah, because I guess there was um, a study in the 30s that said there's no discernible difference in that, and then no one did anything for a long time. Everyone just cited that study. Right, and this is, you know, part of the hazard of... (laughs) Just believing in other studies. Right. I know. And then I get stuck into a rabbit hole of, oh, well, if you're not going to believe that study, then what do we believe? And maybe science is all wrong. And yeah, and then I just go to bed. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but the other interesting part about this is this is a very human-specific thing, right? So they would feed rats deuterium and regular water, and rats would drink the deuterium until they started to get sick, and then they wouldn't drink it anymore. So they knew it was making them sick. But it's not like it was preferential to taste right. or anything. Yeah. So that was interesting. Yeah, and they even did some comparisons with sweetened water and and all kinds of things and found mm-hmm. out, yeah, they, there's really no preference. Um, but the cool thing is the reason it's sweet is because the, the, the D2O interacts differently with taste receptors because, it, I mean, taste is a chemical reaction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it interacts a little differently and gives it that very slightly sweet taste. So interesting. So that is really, that's cool. And this is in um, communications biology. And I think you can get this. Uh, I think you can yes, get it this. Is, it, it is, is open. Open, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is so, open. It's pretty easy to read. Uh, the figures are pretty nice, honestly. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to complain. I was, <laughs> I thought you might not. Yeah. These are pretty fancy. These are structures of these molecules and receptors is very interesting. So, um, yeah. I'm pretty sure most of the plotting is done in Python, uh, judging by the looks of it. I thought that you would say that as well. So, yeah, Daryl, thanks again. This was super cool. And I can't wait to go deuterize. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, if you want to, uh, I mean, looking into the history of deuterium and its production, especially during World War II, is fascinating. uh, If there are any history folks out there. so. If uh, you've done your research and are now deuterizing ah. things ah. in your in your home electrolysis plant, ah. Shannon, how can folks send us the results of their deuterium studies? Uh, <laughs> uh, please show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. If you tweet us, obviously we're going to make a whole show about it, but you can do so at Don't Panic Geo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. Um, sometimes we deuterize things in the Slack channel, so you can come on over to the Software Underground, and we're on the Don't Panic channel. Thank you always to our Patreon supporters, and if you would like to support us on Patreon, you may do so, patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And even though the structural engineers in our respective buildings strategically plan the removal of a key (laughs) load-bearing beam whenever they hear us say it, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.